You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Andy Slavitt, former White House Senior Advisor on Coronavirus Response, joins the Post to discuss his new book, Preventable, the inside story of how leadership failures, politics, and selfishness doomed the U.S. coronavirus response. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmin Abutalib. Today's guest is Andy Slavitt. He resigned from the White House last week as a COVID-19 senior advisor, and this week he's out with his new book, Preventable. Before we dive into his book today, we're going to get his take on the country being almost fully reopened, variants, anti-vaxxers, and his son, who's a COVID long hauler. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Yasmin. So before we dive into your new book, I think there are a lot of questions about the variants and especially the Delta variant. Prime Minister Boris Johnson of the UK postponed the UK's reopening plans by about a month because of concerns over the Delta variant. Is that of concern to you? And how do you think that factors into how we think about the reopening in the US? Well, the parts of our country that have high levels of vaccination should be in really good shape. And if you've been vaccinated, I don't think you should have a lot of worries about the Delta variant. Um, The vaccines are showing themselves to be highly effective so far against the Delta variants. Um, If you're living in a part of the country where there is a low degree of vaccination, um, or if you yourself are not vaccinated, you're clearly vulnerable because this is um, basically COVID-19 on steroids. It grows. Uh, it, it spreads easier, it goes faster, you need less exposure to get it. And so, um, you know, you are facing an even starker choice about whether or not to get vaccinated and protect yourself or be more exposed to this variant. And, you know, I think if there, I know there are people out there still making the decision about whether to get vaccinated, but it's a great opportunity to, for people to talk to their doctor and make that decision. So that's a great point because we fortunately we know the vaccines are are very effective against this variant. But on Sunday, the former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, said the Delta variant could become the dominant strain in the US, which could lead to new outbreaks in the fall. So given the UK's decision, how big of a concern is that for you? And and what do you think Americans should be aware of? Do you think it could become the dominant strain in the next couple of months? Well, it looks like it will be. Um, and, you know, we have a, as long as we have a dominant strain that the vaccine is highly effective on, then, uh, then for those who are getting vaccinated, we should feel good about it. But this is a vaccine that will become more dominant. Uh, thankfully, the spike protein is one that we will be able uh, to reach with our, with our highly effective vaccines. So, um, there, you know, I think we can expect in the fall that if you're in a community, say in the Southeast, where penetration rates of vaccines are lower, and there are things like indoor weddings and and other things, you will see outbreaks um, unless we uh, get more and more people vaccinated. And I think by then, you know, we should have good news out of the FDA about the Pfizer and and soon the Moderna vaccine being fully approved. And when that happens, I hope we to see many more people continue the road to vaccination. So I I know there's a lot of encouraging news on vaccines and how effective they are against the the various variants that have emerged, like you noted. Um, But right now, we basically have an honor system in place for the vaccine. So 
what can or should employers and maybe individual employees do as people return to work? Um, and is there a way that we could know who's vaccinated and who's not? Well, you know, one, one employer I talked to recently before I left the White House um, said they weren't requiring vaccinations among their uh, employees. But what they were doing was saying that if you don't get vaccinated, you need to get tested. Um, you need to get uh, tested two or three times a week. So, you know, there's a lot of different approaches, and I think each employer is going to decide what's right for them. Um, I think some employers, just like some universities, will end up requiring vaccination. Some employers um, won't, but will say, if you don't get vaccinated, you need to wear a mask. Or some will say you need to show a negative test. Um, and maybe that'll only happen in, you know, for a temporary period of time while there is, so while there is spread. You know, when the spread's very, very low, and when the spread gets lower, I think those practices probably will go away. Well, one thing that I think we want to understand how you think, you know, companies should think about reopening and getting people back in the office. Um, the Biden administration lifted the restrictions on the number of federal employees who could return to work while still maintaining some flexible telework policies. I mean, how, how should we think about that and, and how should we think about, you know, the rest of us who are going to return to the office soon and how people should be thinking about returning? Because right now it looks like the country is pretty mixed in terms of people who do want to return and don't. Yeah, look, I think we're used to thinking of COVID-19 as this sort of existential threat um, with, with a lot of unknowns and a lot of uh, anxieties. And, and that is how we've been feeling for the last year and a half. I think we're moving to a place though, where we can start to move COVID-19 into the bucket of all the rest of the challenges that we deal with every day that are manageable. And making manageable means that you'll want to be alert to if, for example, you live in a community that has a high degree of, um, of COVID or there's a new outbreak, you'll want to be aware of when seasonally there are people, particularly older people or people who are at risk, um, who may be exposed. Um, and so, you know, people, you know, our practices will probably adjust a little bit, just as they do um, with other things that we view as manageable risks in our lives. But so I think, well, what will feel a, a bit of a shock at first, going back to the office, taking off your mask, if you've been wearing a mask and so forth, um, over time, I think we'll start to, to blend and blend in. And people will decide what they're comfortable with. Some people will feel like they can go to a crowded stadium and not be worried. Other people um, will want to go and sit in a vaccinated section, um, which my son and I did at a recent basketball game. And if that's you know, so, so over time, I think there will be there will be all kinds of nuances. But mentally, we should be adjusting ourselves to a place where, even with the new variant, if you've been vaccinated, you are extraordinarily protected. You know, 98, 99 plus percent of people that are being hospitalized and dying with COVID have not been vaccinated. So if you've been vaccinated and you've been past a, a several week point, um, going back into the office, going back to a restaurant, going back to all these things, while they may seem strange at first, um, are actually quite safe. I'm curious what it what it felt like at the in that vaccinated section of the basketball game because you're right, it's going it's going to be a huge adjustment for people to not view it as the sort of deadly threat. Um, I know that you just resigned last week, but. What advice would you leave the Biden administration with in terms of how to navigate this next phase of the pandemic and the advice you would give to states, especially because states are in, are in such different phases of 
reopening and their vaccination campaigns. Sure. Well, my, my resignation was planned from the start. I was uh, in as a short-term government employee for 130 days, which was the same amount of time that uh, Ron Klain was in for the Ebola response. And, you know, our view was at the end of 130 days, we're either going to be in a much better place or we're going to be in real trouble and we weren't going to let that happen. So it was, it was a wonderful service. And I think uh, a lot of the systems are set up for success. The team is terrific. I wouldn't rather have anybody focusing on this. And the president is in a very clear way, in a very compassionate way, leading on, on this issue. And, you know, the next phase of this work is going to be a couple of things. One is it's going to continue to vaccinate the people in the country that haven't been vaccinated. And I think that will happen over time. Um, and that will happen locally. It'll happen with local communities and conversations, but it will happen. Um, second is it's time we've got to do the job to vaccinate the globe. Uh, G7 this last week was a powerful beginning uh, for that. Um, and the commitment that the U.S. made to purchase and donate 500 million vaccines around the world is the kind of leadership that's needed to get it done. We're going to need over the course of 2022 to, to be vaccinating billions of billions of people. And then third, um, there are other breakthrough opportunities. Antivirals to me is a very important development and we have clinical trials ongoing and it'll be very important for us to get um, through those and see if we have an antiviral, which will be another game changer at, at making COVID even more manageable. Well, one of the goals that you were working on um, up until you left, and I know this is the goal that the administration's working towards now, is having 70% of adults have their first shot uh, by the 4th of July. And there is a risk that the administration doesn't meet that goal, given you're now in the in the phase of this where you're trying to um, convince people who maybe don't want to get vaccinated to get vaccinated. So do you think the administration can meet this goal? And what were some of the biggest hurdles that you saw that the country is going to have to overcome to, to meet some of these goals? I would characterize it as a national goal for our country is more than an administration goal. I think the president would like to see people step up to that level because we'll be safer if we do it. Um, I think we'll be very close uh, to 70% by July 4th. And then I think we won't stop. I think we'll we'll keep going. And I suspect um, that over time will be well above 70%. Um, but the, it's really important that community by community, that 70% will look different. So that could be 90% in the Northeast and it could be 40 or 50% in some communities in the South. So, you know, if, if we don't want to have a divided country and we have a president who really wants to bring people together and make this not about politics, hopefully we can overcome some of that regionalization and hopefully uh, we can begin to vaccinate uh, more and more people. I think the big challenge uh, right now with the people who have not decided not to get vaccinated are really fall into two categories. And neither of them are people that I consider to be anti-vaccine. Yes, there are people that are anti-vaccine. Um, they're a small and vocal group, but the, the two more, the two larger groups are one, people under 40, because and, and particularly people under 30, to whom COVID, they're not anti-vaccine in any way. It's just COVID-19 doesn't for them feel like a big enough threat to get moving and do it. Um, so it's just about making it more convenient, making it more accessible. And secondly, there are a set of people who still have questions about the vaccine and they're, they're on the fence. Um, they don't, they're not opposed to vaccines overall, but this vaccine, they want to see 
how people who have been vaccinated respond. They have questions, maybe the questions are about the longevity or the development process or fertility or what have you. And we should treat every question as a legitimate question. And we should understand that some people's processes are just gonna be longer. For some people, this is a bigger decision that, they, that needs to be more considered. And if that's the case, then you know, rushing them isn't the goal. Getting people legitimate information from local sources who they trust versus some dude on Facebook, that should be the goal. So I wanna um, jump into your book in just a second, but before that, another topic that's that's been in the news a lot recently, including in our newspaper, um, is this question about the origins of the virus. And of course, President Biden's ordered a 90-day review from the intelligence community. Have you seen evidence one way or another that indicates whether this might have been a lab leak versus a natural origin? Um, and do you think that the Biden administration can really get an answer on this? Because as my colleague and I documented, the Trump administration had a number of reviews that ultimately were mostly fruitless. Yeah, we don't know. And what's important is that people may have a bias um, because there's a narrative they like one way or the other, but we need to get to the bottom of this and China needs to cooperate. Uh, we cannot set a precedent of not having full cooperation and understanding how these things started. So you can create a, uh, you can paint a picture where this happened in a lab because we know that the virus aerosolizes and you can imagine a spill or something like that. We don't have any evidence of that whatsoever, but that, you can imagine that that could be possible. And you could certainly imagine that like most other viruses or all other viruses, that there's a zoonotic link. Um, it's interesting, there is a, a segment in our book, in the book, in Preventable, um, which talks, which which has uh, President, President Trump at the time raising the question and the way this situation gets explained to him is by someone telling him a bedtime story, which is, I think, uh, quite an interesting uh, part of the book. But, you know, we don't know. And um, we're going to have to, it, by the way, it often takes longer than it should to get to the bottom line on these things, but um, we have to be very insistent that we get there. Well, speaking of your book, that's what we want to turn to now. Um, so you've said that the, the country's just surpassed 600,000 deaths, which was unfathomable a year ago, even a few months ago. Um, you had said that if Americans had made a little bit more sacrifice, that perhaps some of this could have been avoided. And I want to understand a bit better what you mean by that, because I think there are a number of people who feel they, they made a lot of sacrifice. There were months-long periods of isolation. Millions of people lost their jobs, businesses that had to shutter. So what were you thinking of when you when you said that? And and could you help us understand, you know, you've said that this death toll could have been avoidable. What was avoidable? What could have been different? Yeah. Well, so first of all, um, Americans have suffered greatly as have people around the world. So uh, um, actually, I think the, the comment that um, around sacrifice was taken a bit out of context. Um, I think the, the thing that I hope we do look at is the fact that as we sit here in uh, 2021, we were a country that decided that in many cases, 70% of Americans needed to be essential workers and that we needed people to um, do a variety of things in, in ensuring that we are um, uh, getting uh, from everything from getting food out of the ground to driving the trucks to uh, meatpacking plants to delivering groceries to delivering movies to delivering everything else 
And we had a large portion of the population that's been um, very much at risk. And um, that's largely been uh, something that, is, as, that other countries did not do. So I think as an example, so it's an example, I hope we examine um, our, our views towards um, what, what should be the policies that set us on the course to collectively um, looking out for one another versus policies where we have large numbers of people exposed and large numbers of people um, who are, you know, like myself, spent much of the pandemic indoors in my house in relative comfort with enough savings to get through um, the pandemic. You know, I don't, I don't call that out in the book as a primary cause, but I do think it's a dialogue that's very important for us to have because, you know, we have a lot of conversations about how important individual liberties are, whether it's to wear a mask, not to wear a mask, et cetera. Uh, but we also should have a conversation about what's the collect what what's the collective good here? What are the things that we should be um, doing for uh, for one another? The the bigger issues in the in the book that I think cause um, us to look at what's pre what was preventable um, are really twofold. One is there's a set of technical things that we just got wrong. Um, we didn't have enough tests. We didn't have a stockpile of protective equipment for uh, people. Uh, and then secondly, politically, um, you know, I think that the that the uh, Trump leadership committed some what I called what it called some deadly sins in terms of how um, it led. And, I, you know, that's I think uh, a lot of the focus of the book is inside story, because I was talking with at the time, uh, Jared Kushner, Debbie, Debbie Burks, um, many other people inside the administration. And I sort of lay out verbatim um, the conversations um, and the things that went on behind the scenes. That also, I think, show how how that was approached. I think when you when you paint the whole picture together, you just have to ask yourself, why is it that we did worse than other countries? Why is it that more people died um, relative to our population? And you know, I think the book tries to not preach that answer, but try to lay out some of those things that happened. And I think the lessons become, I think, pretty clear for us to look at. Well, like you noted, you, of course, had a front row seat to a lot of this and were talking to a lot of people who were key in the response. Hindsight, of course, is 2020. And, and there are some of these bigger questions about collective sacrifice and, and policies. But given what you know about the response, what would you have done differently? What parts of some of the tragedy that we endured do you think were preventable or avoidable? Yeah. So look, first of all, managing a pandemic is not easy. You're never going to get it perfectly right. You're never going to get everything right. And so we ought to be very forgiving of any political leader that was um, that came from a good place, that was of goodwill, and and even accept the fact that you know mistakes were going to be made because managing a pandemic is hard. Um, but there's there's three things that 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 are above and beyond kind of poor management that I think we should be looking at here. Um, one is President Trump's. Um, uh, power and penchant to deny the things he doesn't like and things he doesn't that doesn't make him look good. And there was a long period of time, as we know, certainly from Bob Woodward's reporting, where there was where the president continued to deny that this virus was deadly and here and going to bed every night, sleeping every night until such time as the NBA and the stock market forced him um, to, to address the situation. And his power to deny um, really hurt us. If he had simply said, look, we have a problem. I don't have all the answers, but we have a problem. People would have been more prepared. And I think that's a deadly sin, to be frank. The second is the, the quashing of dissent. 
and, and you've done a lot of great reporting about this, and, and the, the Post done a lot of great reporting about this. But in the book, um, there's a there's a part where um, Alex Azar wants to say on Fox and Friends that things are good, which they really weren't. But he wants to add they could things could change rapidly. Not only was that cut, but he was prohibited from going on Fox and Friends, and not only that, he was prohibited from doing media for 45 days. So we have a situation where we have a major global pandemic. And the Department of Health and Human Services is cut off from talking to the press and talking to the public by the White House. That's that's a quashing of a dissent because it didn't fit with the narrative that President Trump wanted. And you can look at that example. You can look at what happened with Nancy Messonnier. You can look at what uh, the approach to the FDA or the CDC. But at a time when we didn't really know what was going on and we needed to learn, quashing the dissent of anybody who said, I've got a different view, um, is incredibly dangerous and I think was a disservice. And then finally, I would say, and perhaps this is extra credit, but the playing on the divisions in this country so that, look, wearing a mask is hard, doing any sort of um, adjusting in people's lives is hard. But um, what I think the president saw as a populist was that um, he could turn this into an issue of pop to win favor with his supporters by by essentially making it a political issue. And that's much harder to recover from. You know, I've talked to world leaders around in other countries, and they've said they too have people who don't love wearing masks, and they have people who don't like um, complying with social distancing protocols, et cetera, because it's very difficult. But at least they said for us, it's not a what color is your jersey issue. It's not an identity issue. And in the U.S., you can't even talk about it because people have to essentially decide whether they're going to wear a mask or not based on their political preference. And 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 I think those three th those three things made the pandemic much more difficult than it otherwise would have been. There were, of course, people who felt like wearing a mask or or some of these other sacrifices that that we needed to make were too much. Do you think that there are sacrifices that people still need to be making right now? And if if so, what are some of those? Well, look, I, I think we I think there's legitimate reasons for people to, uh, to debate any of these questions. Uh, if they're debating in good faith. So um, my concern is not if people say, I hate wearing a mask, I don't want to wear a mask, I don't think it's as effective, et cetera. Um, having a reasonable dialogue with facts, that's what we need as a country. Um, and not everybody's going to agree, and I'm not expecting everybody to agree, but making this an issue where um, you, you, you essentially, your political identity decides that for you is, is, a, is a real mistake. Um, that, and that hems us in. Uh, look, I mean, it'd be my hope that coming out of this and in the place we're in, we have a dialogue and we listen to doctors, nurses, um, people who are on the front lines, people who are most exposed to this, um, people who died in higher proportions and understand what we could do better um, for them. I felt like if someone is forced to work in a grocery store and forced to see my face as part of that, then I should be forced to wear a mask because they're exposed to people like me all day long. That's just a personal view. It's also a view that a lot of governors shared and some governors didn't. But it's but it is part of 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 a compact to one another under, to understand that there are people that are out there serving me and putting themselves at risk. And I want to do everything I can for them if they're if they're in that type of situation. Now that people are vaccinated, it's a very different story because. People have had a, people who are vaccinated have had a choice to be vaccinated. People who didn't get vaccinated, in many respects, have made that choice. 
not all, not in 100% of cases, but in many respects. So I think that goes away a little bit because, you know, back then people didn't have a choice to stay safe. Now they've had a choice to stay safe and they choose not to. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's, it doesn't mean that everybody else needs to adjust around them if they make that choice. You had mentioned when you were talking about your book earlier, this, the quashing of dissent, scientists not being able to speak freely, people like Nancy Messonnier and um, several of the other health officials. Now we're seeing a lot of that manifest in some deep disdain for the scientists, including Dr. Fauci, who's of course become quite a target of, of the right. What do you make of the the demonization of him? And, you know, there's a lot of pulling his words from last year to, to discredit him. What do, you, what do you make of what he's had to endure from much of the Republican Party? People should be careful about criticizing Dr. Fauci before they really understand what he has done. For the last two decades, he's been developing the mRNA platform in response to um, viruses that we were seeing around the world. And this was basic research, investing, and foresight on Dr. Fauci's part and on people on his team like Barney Graham. And on January 11th, um, when China put up the genetic sequence for the virus, Fauci and his team downloaded it, sequenced it, and then by the 13th, they had gotten it to Moderna to start working on a vaccine. So I don't know what Marsha Blackburn or Tom Cotton were doing on January 11th or January 13th or for the last two decades. I'm sure they were doing valuable things, but we should be grateful to have scientists like that who are have the foresight and are doing the things that really have allowed us to get vaccinated or we would have been in a much more difficult situation if we weren't able to access all of that research for all of those years. So I think we ought to be all a little bit careful um, about overly criticizing people. And it is the easiest sport in the world to go find a statement that someone made and go find fault, go find a place where people's wrong. And oftentimes people do that in a way to make, to show that they're just as smart as the experts. See, the expert got that wrong. Therefore, you should listen to me because the expert's no smarter than me. That That's a dangerous pattern. It's not a, it's not a great habit. Um, you know, we, we, we have to understand that experts aren't always going to be right, but they ought to be humble. They ought to be modest. Um, but when the chips are down, you've got to be grateful that you have someone like Tony Fauci in our corner. Well, um, one other thing I want to ask you about, you know, in your book, you talk about some of the additional time you got to spend with your sons who are home from schools, you know, with, with you and your wife at home. Um, and you, you mentioned last month and have talked a little bit about the fact that your son is a COVID long hauler. So I think we'd like to know how he's doing and what you have learned from that experience. Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, first of all, he's he is on the scheme of things, he's gonna be fine, he's doing fine. Um, so, I mean, on a scale of one to 10 and the seriousness of stuff that happens in life, this, this is in the one to two category. Um, Nevertheless, you know, he came to us last, even late last night, and his hands are um, ice cold, um, and, it, and it's strange, um, and, it, and, it, and it feels weird to him, and it makes him um, a little bit concerned and anxious. It sort of cycles in and out, and it's, you know, it's tachycardia, it's uh, shortness of breath, it's cold hands, it's kind of runny nose, um, and things like this, and you know, as a as a parent, 
your kind of your go-to move with your kids is everything's going to be okay, right? And so when he asks me, Dad, how long is this going to last? You know, you reflexively want to go to your go-to move and say it's going to be fine or it's going to end soon or what have you. But it's hard when you don't know. It's hard when you can't, as a parent, reassure your your child. Um, and so I would say, you know, that uh, in the scheme of things, you know, we've we've been quite fortunate, um, but it is a little bit unsettling not to know when his symptoms are going to go away. Um, it does it does in the back of your mind make you concerned that you hope that it doesn't mean things are going to get worse. Um, but uh, but by and large, you know, this isn't this isn't the kind of thing that's preventing him from living his life in any way. Well, I'm glad to hear that he's he's doing better and, and able to to continue living his life. I think that's a that's a big relief. Um, I think that's unfortunately all we have time for. But thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights. Well, thank you. It was great to talk to you again. Thanks again for joining us. Coming up tomorrow on Washington Post Live at 9 a.m., my colleague David Ignatius will interview former National Security Advisor to President Obama, Ben Rhodes, about President Biden's meeting with Putin today. At 11 a.m., we have our can Chasing Cancer special, and among those guests is National Cancer Institute's Director, Ned Sharpless. I'm Yasmin Abutalib. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.